Welcome to the Eater Upsell, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is Amanda Clute, the editor-in-chief of Eater. I'm joined, as always, by Daniel Janine. Hi, Daniel. Amanda Clute, we did our first live show this week. We sure did, with Chef Marcus Samuelson. To talk about his new show that he did with us, No Passport Required. And a bunch of other stuff. And all the other stuff. Yeah. There's not much more we need to say no, about it. No, we recorded it live in our test kitchen in Soho, New York. Ooh, Soho. Soho, New York. <laughs> you know what the fun thing about doing a live interview is? What? You hear some laughs. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's some laughs in there. Like, not crazy loud because the mics are turned the wrong way. But, you know, you get some positive <laughs> feedback when you say something that's moderately funny. Yeah. Uh, there is nothing else we really need to say about it. We do a decent job of telling you who he is when we get there. So let's uh, get into it. Great. Marcus has a crazy story. He was born in Ethiopia. He, his sister, and his mom all had tuberculosis. His mom walked them all the way to the to the city and, and didn't make it, unfortunately. Uh, he was adopted at the age of three uh, to Sweden, where he was where he grew up, and, and I think I said your first love was soccer. Yes, definitely. Um, and he got axed from the team for being too little. Aww. Well, not good enough. <laughs> no, 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 no. Little that's not and, how I... That's not. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. And then, um, and, then, and then took all his soccer passion and started, mm-hmm. started cooking and went on a crazy journey around the world, started in Sweden, went to Switzerland, mm-hmm. to New York, worked on some cruise boats for a year, uh, eventually made it to France where you'd where you thought that was the mecca. You thought that's where I'm going to earn my stripes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then came back to New York, worked at Aquavit, where you were the youngest chef ever to win three stars from New York Times. Fast forward. Can we yeah. fast forward? Yeah, fast sure. forward we're to the we're dinner. More, more success, more restaurants. <laughs> Today, yeah, more success, more restaurants, some ups and downs. Uh, one Top Chef Masters, uh, cooked the first ever meal at the White House uh, for Barack Obama. Um, first ever state dinner, I'm sorry. Um, and then in 2010, opened the Red Rooster, which is still to this day one of the most fun, vibrant, um, exciting restaurants in the city. I was there Monday. It was banging. I had never, <laughs> I'd never been there before, and I texted Amanda. I was on my own with a flicking backpack. I was like, I'm not drinking. I've got this interview Wednesday. I'm just here for here to check it. And I walked in, and I was like, I get it. I get it. I get it. <laughs> Yeah. It was also like live music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the rooster does suck you in. I, I know. Oh, yeah. it, it, it's fun. Thank you. So now, um, Eater and Vox and you have created a new show called No Passport Required, where we go to different cities in America and explore the food of, of communities that, I mean, oftentimes haven't, we haven't seen on, on television. Do you want to tell us maybe how the, how the project got started? Yeah, I mean, it's been an 18 months uh, work that, um, Eater and PBS and myself, we've been on a journey. I remember the very first time that Chad e- emailed me and uh, he came up to the rooster and we kind of like, we just started to talk. And then about a little bit over a year or so, Sonia and a bun- bunch of us, we went to DC. We went to DC. And uh, we had a meeting that we didn't know went great or good, but you never know after, right after a meeting. With so, PBS. With PBS. Yeah. And it felt great, but you, you, know, you, you never know if people are just polite or whatever, right? Um, but we had some Ethiopian food, and uh, we talked some more. And uh, it was really the beginning, I think, of, okay, we're doing this. Like, we're, we're, we're going to do this. This is, it's it's going to happen. And I think that was then 
we had um, another lunch like six months later, five, a couple of months later, uh, at the White Hotel in, in Brooklyn, where we started to talk about, like Sonia brought up, like, what if we do something from um, the Sri Lankan community in Staten Island? And I was like, I really love that idea because it's like, yes, that's different. And we were really starting to talk about communities that has not necessarily been shown that many times on, on in media. And I think that what could be more American than telling diverse stories and not just talk about diversity as a, as a, as a brand or as a name, but actually doing a deep dive. And with PBS, uh, you know, incredible uh, brand and know-how in terms of researching and finding, you know, going for that sort of deep knowledge and uh, with either sort of super local and understanding he or she is a chef, but uh, they might not have a restaurant, but they're a foodie, and or they're not a foodie, but they can add value. So I just thought all of that combined really came up to the um, to no passport required. And it's it's been two years since you pitched it. I think the the situation with immigration has changed in those two years. Yeah. Has the meaning of the show changed for you? A little bit, <laughs> a little bit, just a little bit. <laughs> yeah, you know it's. What, what's been amazing is that the idea that we started to talk about got louder and louder and louder, but I think as a, as a group, we stayed on this idea. Like, like, no, let's tell diverse stories. Let's continue that food can be found, not just in restaurants. And then this other voice, you know, the election and all this other noise became just bigger and bigger. But for me, when it really came together was when I'm in Chicago speaking to Ulysses, just had an incredible meal at uh, Diana's Mitokaya with Ulysses as the beverage director of this incredible restaurant, so vibrant, so good. And he's there with his mother and she's telling us the story about how she crossed the border. She tried seven times. She was eight months pregnant. And this ice and DACA does not become a number or a newsflash anymore. It becomes very personal and real. And, you know, we just end all end up crying and bawling, and because it was just like, I get it. Like it's not a number. It's this is what it is. You know, it's it has an incredible, um, uh, deeper sense in terms of people's lives. And of course, I get it. Like we all get stuff through our phones, but like watching it and being there, it's. You know, so I just still get like very emotional about it because it's it's and the fact that we can do a show that stays focused on that, it's amazing. Because we're showing real America. We're showing the beauty about America. And America is such an incredible place because it's diversity. And you know, those other fools, they have an expiration date, but Ulysses' mom don't, really. Well, and the, I think it's interesting talking about how political or apolitical the show is. Like it's on PBS, it can't be that political. You're telling these stories, which is essentially somewhat political, just by talking about yeah. immigration. Was there a lot of pushback? Did you want it to be more on the nose about the politics, or was telling the stories enough for you? I, I, I think one of the incredible moments in this, with, in this sort of fucked up moment that we're living in is that it forces you to be really creative. We all, everyone is dealing with their own creativity and how to articulate that, whether it's through food or through, uh, through an article or through, you know, and I think it's almost, 
it's almost too simple that I'm going to do something against somebody else, right? Like there has to be a higher, higher, deeper meaning to that. And I think just by, you know, telling these stories, you're holding on to uh, let's make America delicious. <laughs> you know what I mean? Let's make it schmutzy and delicious and super good. And guess what? Unless you're native, everyone is immigrant. And we, what would we eat if we wouldn't have immigrants? Like this idea that you're illegal, you're illegal. Like, like you're illegal if you do an illegal act, right? If you're like rob a bank, like you've done something illegal. Now go and sit on the bench for a while. But other than that, every single person, whether it's their grandparents or whatever, we know this. We know this stuff. So I think as a black person, I think you raised, it puts you in a very, as a black male or that's the only narrative I can speak from, is that you're pretty well prepared. My grad school was hatred. My <laughs> college was, you know, like, you're you raised around this. You're raised around, you know, it moved from niggers, it moved to immigrants, like, but it's the same shit. So I'm like, all right, you wanna hate, hate. It's okay, I've been through this before, you know? It's, it's not laughable to the person, but it's kind of laughable to me, uh, and I think, also being an immigrant on top of that. Like I know how patriotic immigrants are to this country and it's not just about waving a flag, it's about what you do and who you, where you work and who you, what you do in your communities. There's many ways of sh showing this and I'm so proud of, of, of us for, of the team for being able to go, like when Jana came in, it's like just keep hammering down, no, we gotta go back to the city because we haven't told the story well enough. And that, that's both because of Eater and Vox but also because of PBS. So you never felt, I mean, even inadvertently sometimes it comes up. You say things like, with what's going on in the White House yeah. or whatever. Like, what was it like on set? Would you ever really call out Trump or call out Pence and then, and then feel like there was some kind of pushback from PBS? With, I mean, I shouldn't say on, from PBS, but, like, we talk about this shit all the time. Like, we don't live outside the reality right. of the garbage, right? So this is a, this of course, but I think, Again, it's like, I remember my mom, like, when, like, you know, you're, like, whatever, eight or nine or whatever. I'm like, my mom's, like, this tall white girl, like, having all these black kids and all of this shit. And when somebody calls you nigger, you got to call them white cookie. And I'm like, not quite the same. <laughs> Thank you, mom. Like, and I was, like, holding on to that shit. It's like, it's, it's, I think for me, like, you want to be the right, on the right side if you want to hold on to a bad idea, there's going to be a line drawn in the sand. We did, America has shown it so many times. We did it through civil rights. We did it through gay rights. We're doing it at this moment, through, starting with women's movement, to, and there's going to be more movements after this. So if you want to be that last guy, male, on that island, hating on immigrants, good luck to you. That island's going to be pretty deserted, and guess what? You're not gonna eat any good food. <laughs> or drink well. Yeah. But you know what? There's a couple of guys from the current administration that might swim your way, and you can have each other. <laughs> what are some of the communities that you haven't gotten to yet that you wanna get to? Oh, there's, there's many. You know, I, I think that, you know, as No Passport becomes a hopefully a celebration of America and, and who we are, like, 
why not start with Native Americans like who are the first Americans, right? Like go there, or why not look at other marginalized uh, communities and finding this dialogue about also not just like last night's episode was great because it was such a positive, funny episode. Sometimes immigration. This was the Indo-Guyanese. Indo-Guyanese. Community it was in New just York. upbeat DJs, and it was like it was very upbeat and fun. And I think. Every conversation about immigration does not have to be super, super heavy, right? And as people who go through movements, it's like, black people were not angry all the time. <laughs> we're not. Like, like, or like from a women's movement, like, like anger is important energy to drive and can put people together, but it's also a lot of celebration. And yesterday, I thought what came through in the programming was that oh, this is really fun, and people are having a really good time, and it was, it was showing really the best of America, and you know, not for anything, it happened to be New York. <laughs> not just saying, just like, just saying. But we talked, we talked about it a little earlier. Yeah. Um, I was curious if you'd be interested in going into the heartland and going to some like good old boy barbecues and, and things like And you said you, you do feel like there is a story to tell there, and you do think that there is something that you can do that is good. Absolutely, I do. I, I, I think that we're we, you know, living in. First of all, traveling the country gives you another privileged point of view, right? Like living in the coast or living in big cities is obviously not only America. There's many Americas, and and uh, I remember one, a couple of years ago when I was traveling um, on a book tour. We stopped. One of the big stops was in a church in Kansas, and it was. It will. I will never forget it. It was like a big room, a lot of people, and they could not have been kinder and nicer. And they clearly was in thirst for other information and just didn't have access how to figure it out, right? And I think that what breaking bread and food does has always been in the center of bringing people together. So as you know, I'm not upset with the people that hate me or, or hate what we're doing. It's just they haven't had access to really good food. You know what I mean? And they haven't had access to really good, you know, like boys kissing or whatever the fuck they're afraid of. You know what I mean? That's a good, that's a, boys kiss all the time. We'll look at the World Cup. You know, it's like, it's nothing to be afraid of. Like, it's going to be okay. You yeah, know you, I mean? you said the questions they were asking you were like, were, yeah. were shockingly weird. No, but they just never had access and travel. And, and, and we laugh at this, but like, Americans, only 8% have passport, right? So when I look at America, it looks, you, when you compare America and Europe, you kind of have to compare both at the same time. And Kansas might be Romania. And, you know, Oklahoma might be Bulgaria. And if you go into the heartland of Bulgaria, no one has traveled there either, and they haven't met any Asian or Jewish or black or whatever the marginalized what might be. And just because we come from a rich country doesn't mean that we've been exposed. To all people, a lot of people have been exposed to that. So I think what Eater and PBS and what we do done together, I think, is a very important piece because it forces you to have these conversations. And what I can't wait is to have this conversation, not just New York or LA, like actually have them in Kansas. And actually, you know, um, I remember one of the funniest David Chappelle skits, it's with um, 
the the black KKK blind guy, right? Yeah. And I I grew up in Sweden where there was a black Nazi. I'm like, all right. So I've been around these weird situations before. So I was like, if only they had some kimchi. You know? <laughs> Do you think this is a role that food TV can continue to play, like with the show and with what Tony Bourdain was doing before he died, like having bigger conversations and bringing people together in that way? I think Tony gave us so much. Tony gave us um, a lot, not just to me as a friend and as a mentor, like he, he gave me a lot, but he gave our communities a lot. And I think some of his best shows was when he didn't leave the country and you know, when he went to West Virginia or when he went to other places because there's gotta be a way to tell a humanize, humanize the stories and, and food is a great way of doing that. So, um, you know, we was, this summer we lost two of the greatest. We lost Jonathan Gold and Tony Bourdain at the same time. And it's like, it's like fucking losing Michael and Prince at the same time. It's too much, you know what I mean? It's like, pa-pa. And it takes generations to build that back, you know? Uh, so our show is, um, you know, Tony inspired us a lot. We talked about, we talked about Parts Unknown constantly uh, and what to do and, and how, how can we, you know, find our own niche, you know? And I think, like, for example, one of the things that Eater provided that was, um, it's been amazing is that map where we went, that that map. So one of my friends wanted to get a reservation at Mitukaya, and when we called up, they couldn't get a reservation because it's booked out for the next two weeks. That's amazing. <laughs> and it's not about just being commercial like that. It's just like, no, it's amazing because it means a lot of people are going there that maybe would not have gone there. And when they go to La Barca and all, all of these different places. So as we continue to do this work, we can go to weirder and better place and more important, not more important, but other important places and be able to tell those stories that may not be on the traditional food map. You know, and that, that's actually one of the first things that Sonia uh, pushed for a lot, like not just telling the Italian story or the French story, like, you know, just pushing a little bit. Yeah, and I think this show probably wouldn't have been so successful without his show and then whatever the next generations are beyond that. Absolutely. I mean, just PBS gives you like, boom. Like, I remember my wife wanted to call our son <laughs> Mandela. I was like, no, we're not doing that to a newborn. It's too much to carry. <laughs> too much I'm like, pressure. you walk into PBS, like, shock, it's Julia. And then, you know, like, Tony's show is great because it's lightening it up a little bit. And the legacy of taking you to exciting places, I don't think would have happened in the same way without Tony's show. But it's, it's, it's a lot of tradition to hold up, yes. And pivoting away from the TV talk, but still talking about what the celebrity chef is these days? Like, what do you think the role of the celebrity chef is in the, you know, with thinking about Tony and thinking about even the changes that have happened in our industry over the last year? Like, where do you see your role? Well, you can ask Tung's mother, rolling spring rolls with her if celebrity and chef mattered, right? Like, my, I say that because the word celebrity chef for me, I've never, I've never thought about it as that, I'm in that space because it's just not a space that, you know, you're a cook, you're a chef, and you're going to be a chef. I'm going to be a chef once, like I started cooking when Yo! MTV Raps was on TV. Like, you know what I mean? That's a big, this before internet. Like, it's a big, you know what I mean? Like, cooking is going to be there when it's, I was in it when it's not trendy, the moment where it's trendy to be in it, and then I'm going to be in cooking when it's not trendy again. 
So these things that you put, happy chef, celebrity chef, pissed off chef, like all of these things might change, but what's not going to change is your passion for food, right? So if you are deeply in love with something like cooking, you're going to sit on different sides of this if you're lucky enough to be around long enough. So that's the thing for me. I love food, and I've been lucky enough to work with food in all aspects all over the world. If you are a person that, you know, have a platform, for me, it's like, what do you fill that with? Fill that with good. And as a black chef, it, opening Red Rooster was part of that narrative and taking that responsibility. Uh, as an immigrant, being fortunate enough to work on no, pa uh, no passport, it's, that's the work, you know what I mean? Like, and then things, other things will come before and after that, you know? And uh, I'll, with, we talk about this constantly. Like, if we're lucky enough to do this, make sure that, like today, last night we had the Indo-Guyanese community come to our restaurant, and today we had 30 kids learning about, from between 11 and 14, learning about what is a restaurant. And all their questions were amazing. That's the work. And I couldn't do it without all this other work. I'm sure, you know, when you're, when you're at fun, cool chef hangouts and you're with, um, yeah. you know, friends who do, you don't see doing those things, that you don't see them, like, highlighting communities or bringing kids in to teach them what a restaurant is. Do you ever, you ever lean on them and say, hey, you've got this platform right now, you, you should really be doing at least something? Well, yeah, I think people arrive to it on completely different moments, and just because you're not from... A super marginalized community does not mean that your journey wasn't long or hard, right? And I think people arrive at it at so many different times. And <clears throat> I had great mentors that pushed me, but we had that relationship. Like Leah Chase is in the show, or Charlie Trotter did that for me. I remember going to Charlie Trotter's kitchen cooking, and he did cooking cl classes. He, he taught young inner city kids about Buddha fruit in the 90s and <laughs> fresh ingredients. And I was like, what the hell is he doing? This is unbelievable. And so I, I was there when that happened. He cooked, he had a young woman that was blind in the kitchen. Like he was not afraid of putting in people that have had other situations. And you stand next to that and you realize you're the only one that is stopping. You're the only one that had a problem. So I was lucky enough to be around people that constantly pushes you. And then I'm like, if I'm not doing something, I'm not, and, and, I go back to, not to harp on Charlie Trotter, but like I remember when Patrick Clark died, Charlie Trotter just, he faxed me, he's like, these are the dishes that your kitchen is doing recipe testing for because we're sending his kids to school and we're going to do a book. He didn't even ask, chef, do you have time? He's like, you're doing this. I'm helping you out, so this is what you owe me. And that level of clear, like, you owe death here. It's, I love that, and that's what leading is. It's not comfortable, it's not cool, it's very uncomfortable, but we did a book, and the kids get, went to college, and I'm not saying it was only because of Chef Charles Trotter, but it was part of it. And he didn't, you can get a call, and still, when I struggle through these things, I call Danielle, you know, I always call Danielle, Chef, like, that's, like when Tony, I call Danielle, it's the first person I call on this stuff. I call Jonathan Waxman. I call Leah, I call a lot of people. So I have mentors that are still sort of, when I struggle with shit. So I hope Young Chefs has mentors that can push. Doing 
Yeah, like I get this, I get a tribe of cute 30, like 30 texts a week from young chefs. There's the work we maybe in, at Aquavit, and, and they're, not, they're not so young anymore, but they're amazing and they have questions. And it's your duty, part of being chef, it's like your duty to get back to them. You know, that's the tax, you know, and that's, that's the good stuff too. There's another element of the restaurant industry that you've talked about in your book a little bit about how hard it can be and how hard your training was and how yeah. I think we could call it even abusive. Yeah, the training very was. abusive. We don't have to talk Getting you, a plate in your face with hot fish, yeah, that's abusive. <laughs> and you said that like the discipline is so important to you, but do you look back on that, especially given the way we've been talking about the industry in this past year, like do you think changes should be made? Have you, has it affected how you run your restaurants? I, oh my God, it's a good, such a good question because we, a lot of this is generational change, right? And, and I realized when I go through my journey that I was, the whole generation I come up with, people of 10 years older and five years younger, let's just call it what it is. We're all got abused. We come from abusive situation, not from my parents, but from the chefing environment that we put us to. It was the only way, and it was the only way that was presented to us. And if you're a black chef, it was definitely the only way. And I'm not saying it was right. I was, when I worked in Switzerland, I threw up every day and I had to teach myself in seven minutes, I could throw up, take off my apron, run to the bathroom, clean myself back up, and then be back on the line. And, Maybe only my chef would notice that I was gone. If it took nine, the whole kitchen find out, and then was, that was that, right? So you, you, you learn how to figure this shit out. Not a good idea. Really bad, really, really bad stuff, but there wasn't another way. Um, I am, what did I decide after that? For me, it was, okay, the two things I never saw in kitchen was people of color and women. So when I had a chance to start hiring people, I just decided not, because it only makes sense. Half my kitchen's gonna be people of color and women. And that's not like a big heroic idea, it's just like, it's the right thing to do. And it creates a better environment. Now, finding the balance between being disciplined and working hard versus being overprivileged or your opinion always matters, actually in training sessions that don't. When you're leading the team, or you're beginning to lead the team, or when you are included to them, there are moments when those decisions matter. But in the beginning of your journey, you, it doesn't. Because part of being a chef is also, it comes down to repetition. So you have to do this just automatically for a long time. You just have to saute a vegetable for a certain time, and then you can move on to fish, and then you can move on to X, X, Y, and Z. So we can't sleep on repetition, you know? I do think the industry is a thousand times better today from that level, that, that there's different voice, different voices, different ways of, of, of uh, communicating that. Uh, I don't know if the food is gooder. <laughs> not sure. <laughs> but I do know it's a better industry. What were you like when you were at the helm of Aquavit when you were like 24 and, and all you'd really experienced was these abusive chefs? I mean, I don't think I've ever a good manager is just not my skill set like I'm I, no it's, it's not I, I don't I mean you have you, you can ask Nina I mean, it's, it's not it's what I'm manager. really good at but I what I will bring to the I'm, I'm excited and I'm going to be engaged and involved um, you know 
people curse at me all the time and I curse at people back. It's a fair pit fight. We're together, we're in the, we're in this together. We're fighting, like, it's okay to go back and forth, right? <laughs> but you're not throwing plates at people. No, 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 no. But also you want, the, you want to motivate people to do the best result. And, you know, one thing that we talk a lot about is like, okay, what was this moment like? What did you learn? How can we have done this differently? And uh, that I think is important as a, as a, as a chef. But it, you want to work with people that are super engaged and are committed. And if you can do that in one hour a day or 23 hour a day, it's probably better somewhere in between, right? And, and finding that balance, it's very, it's very difficult. You know, I am a, f a food fanatic. I've, like, I'm, I've always been with food, right? So it's very, I don't expect everybody else around me to have that level of intense relationship with it. I don't. And it's a good thing if you don't. But still, we got we to gotta deliver at the highest level. Uh, and, you know, I, 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 I never have this figured out. I can tell you. So you, you said, you said, I think you said somewhere that when Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who is the White House press correspondent, was kicked out of a red hen, not obviously affiliated with Red Rooster, um, you, you said that you would probably not have kicked her out and you might have pulled up a chair. No, but I, th I think that she, she's, she's very, she's, I feel for her, I feel really bad for her. I really do. Like, I do think her dad and her, that should probably, they would probably benefit a lot to come to Red Rooster. It would be a good thing <laughs> Open them. invitation, Sam. Yeah. No, it would be. Um, because, you know, the highly misinformed. It's misinformed about the world. And, and uh, you know, like, she knows what she's saying is not the truth. So she's so far away from her own best version of herself mm -hmm. which you know that she doesn't believe in so coming up to rooster and eating food with um a bunch of um schmutz in new york that would be a good thing that would be perfect and eating some fried chicken and 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 the smells and the music and the guy with the braids and the lady that just gonna go up and talk to her that would be amazing because guess what that is america you know, I, I don't think you're going to gain by just throwing someone out. Um, but so I just think like, just sit in it, sit in this and mm -hmm. just sit and take it all in. And um, at least she would get a good dog bag if she left early. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I feel bad for her. I really feel bad for her. Like, and it's fascinating to me that they really miss so much of good life because they... They pick on all these people, but yet they can't help to go to these restaurants. Order in. Don't go out. <laughs> if you don't like Mexicans, don't go to a Mexican restaurant. If you don't like this, don't do it. Like it. So it's clear that they like people on a servant level. That's the conversation you want to have. You serve us, and that's what you do. That's just not how the world works, you know? Mm -hmm. No, I think it would be good for her to come uptown. But it's, it's interesting that restaurants have become more of a stage for protests like that, whether it's coming from the owner, or the servers, or just people in the restaurants. Like, what's your take on, on all that happening? Well, I, I, I always looked at restaurant as a, what are they saying besides what's on, with what's on the plate, but who are serving it, right? And, and I think we looked at, you know, 
again, I go back to Leah Chase. When she was starting serving in the 40s, she took a risk every night because integrated restaurants weren't allowed. That's taking a risk. That's like being thrown in jail because serving this room, female, black, in the 40s. Like that, I look at those are risk takers. This nonsense, it's like, it's nonsense. It's beneath us. It's, it's nothing. Like, you're, you're, you're not even, like, you have to have some vanity. Like, get away from it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's nothing. Like, uh, I think that, you know, when Alice Waters, like, started really link and have conversation between the farmers and the cooks and all of that, that is setting upside down on this sort of hierarchy of what French, what our cooking have been to that point. That's taking a risk. So I think that, again, women have been at the forefront of taking risks, real risks, uh, many, many, many times in our industry, and our industry are much better for it, you know? Uh, when I started Red Rooster, I thought about that constantly. Like, it was a state that was really thought through. Like, I looked at a map in New York, and you look at 20,000 restaurants, da 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 and where was like restaurants lacking? Uptown. So it's like there are political messaging through restaurants constantly. Um, no one's gonna remember this. This is this, it's, it's not. It's a moment. Like it's nothing. Can you talk about Red Rooster and your decision to open up in Harlem? Yeah. It's the best decision I've ever done. You know we. I Were knew, you living there first, or did you yeah. choose a neighborhood first and move there? I lived there for seven years before we opened Red Rooster, and I, I really wanted to study and learn the community uh, and understand that I, as a black person, first of all, you're constantly inspired by what African Americans has done and created voices for us as black people, even if you don't live in America. So we owe the civil rights movement and African Americans the diaspora so much. If you're a black kid in Germany, if you're a black kid in Tokyo, you're like, this is what you're looking at. And Harlem becomes that Mecca, what inspires you, like where you want to go with your intellect that one day, right? So it was, it was part of that process. And then, but I said, I felt very much like I can't just open, I need to know this. And I didn't know, and what you realize very often is, like, just right now, the false narrative about immigrants is being peddled by a lot of people, right? So you have to, so no passport is creating sort of another conversation around that. False narrative around black people is being <laughs> peddled forever. So you knew that's not it, right? Like, you knew, like, but yet jazz clubs and supper clubs and bars, and if you looked at restaurants from the 40s and the 50s, there were tons of restaurants in Harlem. So it's not like we having, oh, we opening in Harlem right now at this moment. We're just slowly getting the map back to what it looked like 50 years ago. So now that might be progress from the crack epidemic, but it's definitely not progress versus circa 1942. You know, so, so it's like understanding that there's a different world and there's different options out there and what was my role in that and working on that and also learning a lot like, where a place like Harlem, the whole way uh, commerce and restaurants are done are very different, right? Best food might be in the park. My, my fish guy might be by the subway station. So they were like 
food trucks before there were blogs and food trucks. They were secret restaurants way before there were secret restaurants. So they were doing all this work without sort of getting the microphone for it. And for me, what Rooster sort of, what I tried to understand so much was like, okay, I got to gather this stuff, figuring out how to put it in the traditional sense of four walls restaurant so my customer will understand it and then get the fuck out of the way so people can have a Harlem experience um, where music is part of it, spirituality is part of it, delicious food is part of it. And so it's a piece, it's not a restaurant, it's a, it's a theatrical piece that you happen to serve food. You know what I mean? That's how I think about it. And it's a constant moving work. You know, right now we're focusing on how do we become green, like it's in our way. So the greenest way for us was to hire from the community. When it, when it opened, uh, you got some punching up from people trying to take shots of you for, for being up there. And maybe it wasn't the place that it wasn't your place or is, is that done? Are we, are we fine with that? Or, or do you still catch it from people? I, you know, I think it's one of the coolest thing. Like if you and I would walk home from the restaurant, people are floored with, I get comments every single day. It's like, how come the chicken is this? And can my daughter get a job? And you know what? Like, it's, it's constant. Like, why did you change the artwork? And like, uh, the show was amazing. Or people, so, you know, for my wife, when we walk, it's like, she still thinks like, what, what the hell is going on? I was like, get used to it. And I said, the worst sound would be if we would just be dead quiet. Because it means that nobody would engage. Mm -hmm. We're in a public space, 125th Street, in a very public, loud corner, as, you know, uh, avenue. I think people are commenting on our stuff is a sign of love. You know, it's like, I had a lot of cousins, and if we weren't fighting, <laughs> it wasn't a good family reunion, you know? <laughs> so if, like, somebody from an outside community comes and tells us and me what I should be, it's laughable. I'm like, you have zero clue you, your opinion matters but it, this is laughable it would be like i would have an opinion about just because i have an iphone about technology i know nothing about technology you know what i mean so but if it would be laverne coming from church i would listen i would stop i have to stop and listen so it's, it's that back and forth and also it's cute it's like it's a good for them to oh so you need to get in the paper come on sweetie get in here it's okay and eventually, like last year, we were in London yeah. at your Red Rooster there. Yeah. How did you decide to take a concept that was so rooted in this one mm. neighborhood and built around this neighborhood and expand it and build it again for a different neighborhood? Well, I mean, I was intimidated and scared because I didn't, you know, I, I, I want there to be more Red Roosters. I'm just very slow about it. And it's not, it's, I want it to be in communities that speaks to me. So shortage being in East London really, really speaks to my creative juices. And being in London, always something been exciting. But we've always been invited to do a restaurant in West London. And I wasn't interested in that. At the, I was like, no, it's got to be East. It feels much more us storytelling. And we each their own, you know. And, and, and we've been, it's been amazing to be in London, and especially East. And it took a long time. It took four years. And uh, we'll, we'll open more Rooster at some point in other cities here. But... It's got to be in cities that I feel like African-Americans and black people have really contributed something and that voice can be told through both through the light 
and that honors the past, but also being so adding something new to that story, and hopefully um, inspire people for the future. And you know? you've had a lot of offers. Yeah, I mean, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. But that's like that's not, but it, that's not really the the, the the key. The key is to, you know, the staff's got to grow, and 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 we got to we got to do it well. And there are challenges with all of this stuff. And I like those creative uh, challenges, you know. Uh, uh, if you if you keep I'm so I, I'm not worried about us not getting enough shots. That's absolutely not not what I'm worrying about. I'm worrying about us delivering for the locals. So delivering for something like shortage where I didn't grow up, where I didn't have the same conversation. That was that that's a big uphill battle, but exciting also because that keeps you like shit. We gotta you know I I like that. So was your approach then when you open a restaurant in an airport? Mm. Well, I think for me, it's like my company is going to be very mixed. And we work, sometimes we do something with great brands. And sometimes we do something with airports. But sometimes, what does that all lead to? It leads to have a mixed portfolio. So I couldn't afford to have cooking classes with kids. I couldn't afford to have 170 staff at the Red Rooster. Well, we probably should have 90, uh, 75. You know what I mean? But we keep this because it's a community piece. But we have to do other stuff. To, to bring get, in the revenue. To bring in the revenue. And it's like, it's that simple. People are like, what's the strategy? There's no strategy. You, that you do for this, this you do for that, this you do. Like it's, it, it, and of course you want to do stuff with things that make sense for you. But so when we did our restaurant in, um, if we do an airport, like, okay, we felt that it was needed with a real restaurant that people can sit down. Let's not make the food too complicated. But so people can have a real experience. But to say that everything is as authentic as uh, Red Rooster, I don't think you have to because I think that for me, I validated and the common goal is to work towards the, making a more diverse, delicious industry. No passport is part of that. Being a CCAP is part of that. Red Rooster is definitely part of that. And then there's the stuff you have to do to pay for all that, you know? It, it's, it's, it's hard, but it's, not, it's harder not to do it. Um, so we're about to open it up to um, questions, but first, I want to talk about the clothes. Anyone who's seen No Passport has commented to me about how amazing a dresser you are. Are there rules? Do you have like mixing and matching rules? Is there is there any strategy going in? No, I think I mean I my mom and my sisters I always had passed down clothes. That was always like so I the only thing that my grandmother and my mom couldn't make was sneakers, so <laughs> I will always have a love for sneakers. <laughs> so I think that is still rooted. Um, just having fun with it, you know. We, 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 Joanna and I will talk a lot about what can we add to the show that that just having fun and music was one of those things. Like yesterday, we had Run DMC was in there and all that stuff. So, and clothing is another thing like you can have fun with. Like it's not super serious and. And it also breaks the ice. You go into a completely different uh, place where you never met the person and the guy's like staring at you. I'm like, that's all right. And now we can, <laughs> and, and let's get talking. Let's you know what talk I mean? about my shirt. I promise yeah. you the pattern is not going to bite you. <laughs> or they might. <laughs> you, sa- you said you, you try to do something, something African, something Swedish. Yeah. You know, always something Swedish, something African. And, um, and just else I think like, I am the slowest Ethiopian runner, but, but probably <laughs> the best 
Ethiopian ice skater. <laughs> and if you're in Harlem, like, I'm an average dresser. I'll tell you, if you think, like, you walk, come sit at Red Rooster on a Sunday afternoon, post-church, and you're going to see, like, it's derby night all the, the women have like hats that are like Wimbledon or Kentucky Derby, like just because it's Sunday and it's two. The men has like, I mean, pattern. We have a guy called Superfly, right? That's his name. <laughs> like, like I have nothing on Apollo and Superfly, nothing. So it's like, you know, so that idea about being a good Ethiopian skater, it, it, it holds in Harlem. Do people send you hats now? I, I pick, uh, I pick my own, I mean, I, I, it's fun too, like, like to, I think some of them have to be ugly too, I like wearing something really ugly too. I like that. That's a good tip. Yeah. Um, so last thing, you were no, famous, in the book you write a lot about writing letters when you were uh, trying to get into different yeah. kitchens, you would send out infinite letters, you wrote to Oprah, to Letterman, yeah. to, to bring you here. Um, do you still write letters, have you sent in any, any letters recently? <laughs> With the show, I was just on Stephen Colbert, and uh, the producer said that they would bring that up, and I'm like, fuck. <laughs> but then he got in, he thought it was much more fun to like mess up my spring roll instead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was like, good, good, you mess it up, keep messing it up. But it's, I think it speaks a little bit to aspirations and hold on to your dream, and dream big, whatever that is, you know? And I remember like being there, like, who do I know in America? Well, I like David Letterman and I know Oprah. <laughs> and so I'm like waiting for the end of the program, like worldwide pants production and writing it down. And it took me months to get the address of David Letterman's company. Like uh, Oprah's Harpo production in Chicago and like sending it off and being like really genuine, like I can add value. But guess what? The third letter I sent, he hired me. Yep. So it's not a bad percentage. It's not, good. you know. So I, I, if I wouldn't have had that super ambition, I, I think so I think hold on to it and dream big. And and you know I I I love that time. And that I hopefully still the same. Like that's like still what drives me. I came in with three hundred bucks, big dream. Okay, let's push. All right. Any audience questions? Yes, Maisie. What is your process for choosing? Oh wait, I'm gonna repeat it for for the the audio. Is that how do you, what's your process for choosing which, where you'll, you'll film after you choose a community? Well, certain things, what we pitched collectively and what we did was very differently. And there, there were some great moments where all of a sudden we knew that we had to do Haiti. We just knew, you know? So that was great. And I think like something like Chicago and Mexican community, we all, that was very important because of um, the conversation we have right now, right? And also the false conversations in our Arab American community. So I think Detroit and Chicago was really something that we all, I'm like, check, everybody was in on that right away. Uh, and we, we, we go back and forth, back and forth. At some point we were supposed to shoot in Seattle but then this amazing comments about Haiti came up, and then we couldn't go to uh, Seattle anymore. So sometimes opportunities like that <laughs> present themselves, and then we gotta go. And I, I just, I just love the idea that we were able to. I don't know when Haiti and food 
like that. It's an hour documentary when it can fully be flushed out like that. And we, yes, we talk a little bit about earthquake, but it's not the center of the, of the program. It's, it's joyous stuff about food. And, and la last night's episode about the Indo-Guyanese community, what I knew about Guyana before was pretty much, I knew my friend Raymond, I knew about Jim Jones, and I knew about a little bit about music. But to spend an hour to learn about very layered complex about dual migration, fantastic. So that one, I had nothing to do with picking that, and I think that's so beautiful about this process. It's, it's very much a discussion, and then eventually we go. Some PBS came with, uh, in terms of telling the stories, but the restaurants were very much selected by Eater. Um, like, one of the coolest examples is Chicago with Diana, with Mitukaya, but also La Barca. Like, yes, that for me, that is the show. La Barca, that is the show. And so the curation through Eater is really the one that uh, picked that. Sonia? One thing working on this show that was so interesting and so important to me is that it's so easy to be like, oh, like food is the way to get to a culture. Like food is the thing. And once you know the food, you know the culture, which is obviously bullshit. Uh, it's important, sure, but it's not the only thing. And one thing working on this that was so impressive that you kept doing was going back to the music, the sports, like all of the other things that are important to a culture. And I was just wondering if you could talk about that a little bit more. Yeah, I will never be picked up by a cricket team. It's not going to happen. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, but it was, it was so fun. Like one of the things that, was obvious is that this, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to look so silly all the time and enjoying that, right? Like not trying to hold up like, I'm a chef from New York. That's not going to work. Like, all right, so I messed up the spring rolls. Great. But now I can do really good bad spring rolls or like playing cricket or being around, constantly being uh, pushed into other social or cultural activities, but obviously getting in that way. I mean, being in the temple, like I had, I, I'm like, I'm so glad that that scene was so short with me because I was constantly <laughs> lost in translation, but I loved being there. So it was great to add when the show grows, I think a lot is when we are in a temple and we start explaining that there's vegetarian food in the basement and we get into the complexity of migration or dual migration in this case. And that was amazing that we, the show took us there, you know? And it's a lot of push. And that's like what I love about this, so similar to a restaurant to me. Like, you know, we always in each other's face and it's constantly like arguing and bitching about shit. It's amazing, you know what I mean? Like constantly a little bit pissed off or my story didn't get in or like fighting. It's like, you know, doing a restaurant, doing a menu with your team and it's like the sous chef is constantly pissed off because her, her, his thing is not getting on the menu. I'm like, mm, it's so good. I love that stuff. I love that. <laughs> and it's weird when you do it with people that you don't know that well because you're like, oh, shit. I'm like, all right. It's good. It's good stuff. Awesome. Well, thank you all for joining thank us. Thank you, Marcus. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this live interview with Marcus Samuelson. We hope to do many more live interviews like that in the test kitchen, so stay tuned. And come back next week for our episode all about ice cream. <laughs>